Good afternoon. Welcome back to Reunions. My name is Dana Mays and I'm with the Lifetime Learning Program in the Office of Engagement. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to remind you to turn your cell phone ringers off and um, when you walked in, you should have gotten a yellow feedback card and let us know what you thought of the talk afterwards. This is a great tool to help us improve. Um, and I'd like to thank our speaker for volunteering his time today. We have Andrew Stauffer, Associate Professor of English. He's a member of the faculty of the Rare Book School and the director of the Digital Humanities Initiative NINES, which is an acronym for a network infrastructure for 19th century electronic scholarship. He received his PhD and MA from the University of Virginia and his undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania. Please welcome Andrew Stauffer. Thanks everybody, thanks for coming on this beautiful day and coming into Alderman Library to talk about old books for a while. It's one of, one of my passions and I'm, I'm glad uh, to see so many faces here. Um, I'll just give you a little overview of what I'm going to do. I'm going to sort of go through slides and sort of read a text or sort of talk through a text for about 35, 40 minutes. Um, and then we'll take a step back and I'd love to hear your comments on what I've said, on your experiences, your memories of Alderman, and uh, all the things that hopefully the talk will raise and bring back. So, and up here I have a lot of examples of the sorts of things I'm going to be talking about. So. Um, Bear with me in the kind of more formal section of the of the talk. You can just sort of listen, take it in, look at the pictures, and then we'll uh, we're a small enough group that I think we can have a good conversation afterwards. So, in July of 1879, the aging poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow sat in the study of his historic home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, reading an illustrated book about the American West. It told of the immense, never-melting snowy cross formed in the crevices on the face of the Sawatch mountain range in Colorado on a peak known as the Mount of the Holy Cross. The book provided an illustration of this phenomenon by Thomas Moran. This is a scan of that illustration. It's from a book held here in Alderman. For Longfellow, who had never traveled anywhere west of New England, it was nevertheless a moment of recognition. Looking at the image, he was brought back to a night of horror exactly 18 years earlier when in that same parlor his wife Fanny had burned to death in his arms. She had been in the adjoining library sealing a lock of their young daughter's hair in an envelope when her hot wax dripped onto her dress and caught fire. She rushed into the parlor engulfed in flames that Longfellow attempted to extinguish with a small rug and then with his body. He was burned and scarred severely and she died the next morning. And now with this picture of the Mount of the Holy Cross before him, he was moved to write his famous sonnet, The Cross of Snow. In the long, sleepless watches of the night, a gentle face, the face of one long dead, looks at me from the wall, where round its head the night lamp casts a halo of pale light. Here in this room she died, and soul more white never through martyrdom of fire was led to its repose. Nor can in books be read the legend of a life more benedite. There is a mountain in the distant west that sun-defying in its deep ravines displays a cross of snow upon its side, such as the cross I wear upon my breast these 18 years through all the changing scenes and seasons, changeless since the day she died. 
Seeing the cross of snow, Longfellow feels it in a Dimmesdale-like transfer upon his own breast, where it becomes a symbol of trauma and of loss, a kind of typographical dagger indicating Fanny's mortality for him, symbolic on the page of Longfellow's book and adopted by him as a sign of changeless grief, the permafrost left after tragic bereavement. Yet it's also a negative insignia, a white erasure on black ground that reverses the polarities of the typical X that marks the spot, or the black inscriptions on a white page of paper. It is the ghost of a mark. And through it, Fanny's legend, which outstrips those that can be read in books, emerges. The open book in Longfellow's study becomes a portal to the past, to another life, and also a strange and enigmatic mirror via the symbolic trace therein. Turn the clock back now 50 years from Longfellow to the late Romantic era and Felicia Hemans's 1827 poem, The Image in Lava. It too is about an encounter with a negative monument instinct with loss, a record of a fiery trauma etched in rock. In a note, Hemans describes its subject, the impression of a woman's form with an infant clasped to the bosom found at the uncovering of Herculaneum. Um, it, was one, it was actually found at Pompeii, but um, same idea. That is a concave imprint of these ancient bodies in the weirdly preserved ruins after the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. And this is part of the poem. Thou thing of years departed, what ages have gone by since here the mournful seal was set by love and agony? Temple and tower have moldered, empires from earth have passed, and woman's heart hath left a trace, those glories to outlast. And childhood's fragile image, image, thus fearfully enshrined, survives the proud memorials reared by conquerors of mankind. Oh, I could pass all relics left by the pomps of old to gaze on this rude monument cast in affection's mold. Love, human love, what art thou? Thy print upon the dust outlives the cities of renown wherein the mighty trust. Immortal, oh, immortal thou art whose earthly glow hath given these ashes holiness. It must, it must be so. You can feel the poet's urgency here, especially in that last line. This thing of years departed must mean something. This print upon the dust must speak of its own holiness as a shrine to maternal love in the face of loss. Now, Hemans never saw this rude monument. She most likely read about it um, uh, in, in articles at the time, specifically Nathaniel Carter's Letters from Europe, which speaks of seeing at Pompeii the remains, quote, of a female and a child supposed to be a mother who sat down here with her babe and was overtaken by the storm. Like Longfellow lingering over Thomas Moran illustration in his book, Hemans encounters this haunting monument via the mediations of print. Indeed, both poems model a certain kind of reading process or reading practice, a process of imaginative appropriation and identification. Hemans' own mother had died just months before she wrote this poem, and reading about the trace left by the mother and her child in Pompeii, Hemans seems to have engaged in a kind of sentimental fill-in, expanding the reference through an intense investment of personal emotion and imaginative elaboration. And in so doing, she makes this print upon the dust refer to her own concerns, her own losses, like Longfellow, who makes a crevice in the granite face of a mountain range record Fanny's death, filling it with his own grief, just as it has been filled in to become the cross of snow. In 1846, a young woman named Ellen Pierpont wrote her name in a copy of the poetical works of Mrs. Felicia Hemans, published by, in Philadelphia by Grieg and Elliott. 
She was 18 years old, the youngest child of Hezekiah and Anna Constable Pierpont, part of that wealthy and influential family that essentially built modern Brooklyn. You've likely heard the name Pierpont. And her book is now in the general collection of Alderman Library, right here, um, once it came via her granddaughter exactly 100 years later. And it's sitting there on the table if you want to look at it later. Um, the book carries various annotations made in pencil, mostly check marks and lines that she underlined indicating favorite passages or favorite quotations. But most striking, however, is this inscription on the rear free end paper, again written in pencil in Ellen's hand. Oh wait, that's the, that's the cover. You can see the um, total opening there. This is the inscription. Sing mournfully, sing mournfully, our dearly loved is gone. The gifted and the beautiful is from our sight withdrawn. Then let us sing her requiem now in this our parting hour and softly breathe her name who was our fairest, loveliest flower, Mary, Mary, Mary. Now, apparently composed in 1862, that is 16 years after she first got the book and made that first inscription, these lines were written by Ellen, now Mrs. Minor, for her third daughter, Mary Montague Minor, who was born in 1855 and died at the age of seven. In this halting yet moving pastiche of Hemans' style, Mrs. Minor has transformed her copy of Hemans into a memorial site and also into a collaborative anthology. Like a family Bible, the book bears witnesses to stages and losses across many years. And like a source book of feeling, it seems to have offered an idiom to its owner having lost her child, as Amy Hempel puts it, fluent now in the language of grief. It seems that in a certain way, this particular copy or this book has become the image in lava, a thing of years departed, a rude monument of print upon the dust that bears witness to maternal loss. Now, these Grig and Elliot editions of Hemans are legion. It was re the book was reprinted annually for decades, and it was probably the most common, most affordable, collected Felicia Hemans book for 19th century Americans. And UVA holds another copy, this one from a few years earlier, printed in 1839. It's inscribed to Charlotte M. Cock uh, from a friend, Christmas 1840. And it has very few annotations, only a handful of marked pages across its 559, except for one, the one containing the poem, The Graves of a Household. Multiple underlinings, brackets, check marks, and exclamation points erupt across the text of this poem, culminating in the third stanza, which reads, one midst the forest of the west by a dark stream is laid. The Indian knows his place of rest far in the cedar shade. And next to these lines, Charlotte, now Mrs. Gordon, has written, My darling William died December 29th, 1879. And at the bottom of the page, if you go back, she has written one word in response to the conclusion, Alas, if love were all and not beyond all earth. And that one word is no. You can see it down there. Um, like Ellen Pierpont, Charlotte Cock received her copy of Hemans when she was young and unmarried. Charlotte was 22, and turned to it much later as a mother to mourn the loss of a child. William Fitzhugh Gordon, Charlotte's sixth child, died at the age of 28 in Texas by the dark streams of the West, exactly 29 Christmases after Charlotte first received her Hemans book as a gift. Hemans's one midst the forest of the West can be the one that the reader needs it to be. And for the elderly Mrs. Gordon, it was her William buried somewhere in Texas, far from her Virginia hearth and home in Esmont in Albemarle County. 
Now, in both copies, Hemmings' poetry has become a touchstone for personal grief, and these books themselves have taken on a quasi-memorial character marked and revisited across the years. In a couple of years, I found both of these books at random in the UVA library while teaching a class on 19th century poetry, and I thought it very striking that two copies of the same edition of the same author in one library collection were annotated in such a similar way. And it suggested to me that there are rich stories in the stacks, voices from the past and the margins of the Alderman collection just waiting to be heard, and so I went looking for more. And I'm going to talk today about what I found, particularly about the various ways that the books sitting on the shelves of Alderman, that is right on the other side of this wall, were marked and altered by their 19th century owners and what we can learn from that. Now, some of you may have guilty memories of writing in library books when you were students here. Don't worry. I'm not talking about the time you wrote Man vs. Nature in the margins of the UVA copy of Moby Dick. I'm not, I'm not yet interested in student marginalia, and part of the task has been to separate out what modern students are doing to our library books versus what happened here. But it turns out that many of the Alderman Library's 19th century books specifically were donated by the children or grandchildren of their original owners. The historical cycles of collection building here meant that the UVA Library sought donations of material in the mid-20th century, and family book collections came in together where they still reside, often dispersed into the circulating stacks, but still quietly preserving a record of the 19th century readerships. Not valuable enough to go into special collections, these books were put onto the shelves as part of the general holdings, available to students, but infrequently consulted often because they were superseded by newer editions. These are old books that are often in kind of bad shape, as you can, as you can see. And because of this accident of, accident of library history, the Alderman Collection has become a kind of shadow archive of 19th century reading practices and of the lives of UVA alumni hidden in plain sight in the circulating stacks. And the, the two, two that I've mentioned so far Minor and Cock should ring bells to anyone who went to school here. We have buildings named after them as well. So a lot of the, in other words, a lot of the donors who gave these books are the same donors who helped build UVA into the institution it is today. Their libraries were the big libraries of Virginia families at that time, and so they were the ones that, that came in. Um, so what have I got here? Where am I? Okay. Uh, so the 19th century book called forth many, many kinds of interaction between texts and readers, between books and other objects, between human bodies and other human bodies. We tend to think of the history of reading as centered in the consumption of verbal texts, but I want us to encourage us to go beyond texts as verbal linguistic things and think about texts as something closer to textiles, that is woven creations of material and verbal content, a historical record that's always already incarnated, each body bearing traces of its many social interactions in its long journey into our hands. Piercings, perhaps, as in the sewing needle, stuck into an 1860 copy of Hannah Moore's Letters to Macaulay, formerly owned by one Lucy Nelson, who wrote in the book that it was given, brought me by sister from Baltimore, September 1860. That book's sitting right here, too, if you want to see the needle. It still has the thread attached to it. Um, People left things behind in their books, pieces of their lives and even of themselves. For example, this lock of silver hair found here between the pages of the UVA copy of the works of Lord Byron, published in Philadelphia in 1851, formerly owned by Neil Heilman. The lock lies next to the Ave Maria stanzas of Don Juan. So everything I show you today, by the way, is an alderman book. None of this is special collections. None of this is protected. Any student or faculty or you can go pull them off the shelves, look at them, check them out, whatever. Um, so th these are not protected books, and that's part of what I'm going to talk about later, is about their curious middle status um, in, the, in the institution. 
This lock of hair brings me back for a moment to Fanny Longfellow, whose death, you remember, was caused as she tried to preserve her lock of, a lock of her child's hair, and from whose head Longfellow clipped this tress on the day of her death, July 10, 1861. It's now in the Houghton Library in an envelope dated by Longfellow himself. We don't know the owner of this silver gray, lock, the silver gray lock that was preserved here in this 1851 Byron, but it nevertheless gestures to a similar web of human affection and the curiously fragile permanence of the human body and the way it relates to books. In other books here, we find other human traces, like this one of a hand, probably former owner John McSparrens. You can see it there on the left. Um, in an 1825 copy of Burns's poetry, facing an original poem about Burns written in 1851. You can barely make it out. It's all in pencil. But that's up here if you want to look at that as well. Um, or to take another example, this traced hand on the rear free end paper of an 1853 copy of the works of William Shakespeare with schoolgirl Miriam Trowbridge's inscription, Ruthie Whitehead's ugly hand. Oh, no, I mean beautiful one. So uh, uh, I have another shot. My sense is the girls were tracing each other's hands. They, they were at school, boarding school in New York together. They're from Georgia, but they were, this book comes from, comes from a New York boarding school, Miriam Trowbridge. And it's a left and a right hand. I'm, I'm guessing they're sort of passing time by tracing each other's hands, and, and Miriam writes that kind of teasing note there. Um, uh, these books, this book, you know, it's a Victorian book literally bearing the trace of a Victorian hand, a nicely metaphorical illustration of the processes by which books get marked with bodies and tools as they make their way to the library for study. Many of us have by now seen similar interventions in the Google book scans. Um, here the hand of the scanning agent captured unwittingly in the page shot of a mid-Victorian novel. So the image of the hand in the 19th century book, John McSparren's or Ruthie Whitehead's, Miriam Trowbridge, the Google scanner, it makes visible the somatic process of reading, the haptic nature of that process, calling us to attend to the historical book as a social and physical interface, even as it suggests the presence that remains within or even haunts books as they move through time. I was going to look at a couple other examples here. Take this copy, uh, again, the Alderman copy. These are all the Alderman copies, and many of them are right here in front of you. Um, this is the Dutch translation of Tennyson's poem, Enoch Arden, Henoch Arden, published in The Hague in 1869, a beautiful cover there. And it comes from the library of Thomas Randolph Price, who was a literature professor here around the turn of the 19th century into the 20th. He was a former Confederate soldier, he, he, um, and he has, there's many interesting stories about him serving um, in the Civil War. But eventually, then he moved here and became really the first English professor here. He started in classics. It was right around the time when English was emerging as a discipline, before English or you know, literature was department. We used to have classics and other things, but he was kind of our first. And his books all came to UVA when he died. Um, and this, this bears the following inscription on the verso of the title page. Uh, I'll read it to you. Rotterdam, August 28, 1884, Dear Tom. While looking in a bookseller's window just now and smiling at Dombey and Zoon and other English works in Dutch, I got caught in a shower. So I got this book and retreated to a cafe and got a bottle of Rhine wine and have taken the two together. I know the English poem almost by heart, and so I can read this Dutch without the dictionary. And it comes back to me as I read that we read it together in Dear Richmond 19 years ago. Some of the lines that you read aloud then seem vivid and fresh in my memory, things not to die until I do. And so it seemed to me that it might be a pleasure to you to see clearly, as I do through the mists of another tongue, Enoch Arden from another point of view. And therefore, through the golden light of this flask of Rhine wine, I give you this book to show you how dear to me our past has been and how much I think of you. 
James R. When James and Tom were reading this poem together 19 years ago, that is, in 1865, dear Richmond was facing imminent invasion by General Grant's troops. The city would soon be burning as the Confederate Army made its final retreat, and weeks later, Lee surrendered. So that 19 years, you can really measure that. That dear Richmond has a resonance that you can measure by thinking about the times that we're talking about here. Um, next to certain passages, uh, which he says he knows by heart, James R. has written, do you remember? And I remember when you read this. Sorry, I just lost my slides. Ah, come back. I'm gonna need this. Sorry, guys. Um, but he emphasizes the complex and strongly felt layers of memory at work on these pages of the Dutch Enoch Arden. Let me just start again. Um, Enoch Arden, if you, if you know the poem, is, a, is basically a poem about the heart-wrenching consequences of coming home to a place where one has been forgotten, something that must have been on the mind of these soldiers as they contemplated their return um, from the war. Um, I've cut some other interesting examples. This is um, William Gordon McCabe, who, uh, born in 1840, he came here as a student in 1860, but he left in 61 to march off with the Confederate Army. And this is a book, uh, this is um, when he was stationed at Camp Curtis in Land's End um, as part of the Army of the Peninsula. He was in the Richmond Howitzers. Um, and he's used this book um, to kind of map out a little sketch of the disposition of the troops along the, along the waterfront there. So it's found this is an interesting, and this book was here, what, it records its own presence within the spaces of the Civil War, and actually, actually gives us a little picture of how, you know, a military historian might find that map um, interesting, in other words. Um, McCabe was a, uh, also a bookman. His father was a friend of Edgar Allan Poe's, and, and, they, and he, he imbibed with that a great, a great love for books. And this is his copy of a, a biography of Poe, and there's an interesting anecdote. This is an original anecdote at the bottom that's nowhere else recorded. Uh, McCabe has written the following in the bottom. My father, uh, Reverend John Collins McCabe, who was then a young man, a contributor to The Messenger, and an intimate of Poe's, once told me that he said one day to Poe, Poe, Mr. White is greatly hurt at you having spoken unkindly of him. McCabe, said Poe warmly, I never said a word against Mr. White in my life. Did you never say he was a fool? Oh, said Poe with a relieved air. I did say he was a damned fool, but Mr. White can't object to that. Everybody knows it. <laughs> right. William Gordon McCabe, March 26, 1882. Um, so that, that's a nice find. You know, this is, again, these are books that are just no one knows that they're there until I sort of started looking. Um, and one more that... Uh, has some resonance. This is Alderman's uh, copy of Matthew Arnold. And in the introduction, he's circled a passage with some underlining and has written, this is my creed. Uh, this would have been around 1900 when he put the inscription in there. So very interesting insight into the, the, the life, of the way of thinking of the man, the president of the university, the founder of this library. Here, here's his book sitting here on the shelves of Alderman, but no one really knows it's there. And it's not just the fact that it's his book, but that he has used it as a way to give us an insight into, into the way he looked at the world. It's essentially a, a passage about how you try, you try to pursue truth on one side and then the other and not cling obstinately to any one point of view. So I think that was a, a resonant example. And I'm just going to uh, scroll through a bunch of other examples now, just uh, very briefly, give you a few seconds to look at each one as I talk. I have many more. That whole, car that whole um, cart is filled with examples. But just to get a sense of the kind of thing I'm talking about, um, this is all taken from the circulating stacks. And you know, they're part of th those examples that I've talked about are part of this much larger archive of the history of reading. Um, some of them are more legible than others. Some are more evocative. Some are more banal. But because they're part of a library collection with a history, 
That is because they come from a finite set of donors, each of whom left a paper trail and all of whom have some connection to the area and to the university. They can in part be traced and unfolded as part of the 19th century consumption of the book and part of the history of UVA, indeed part of the history of Albemarle County, Central Virginia, Richmond and the like. Indeed, with the rise of large-scale digital text searching, we can now more easily make connections, particularly if we can tie names and dates to annotations and life events. That is, genealogy is much easier now. You can figure out the relations of people. And such examples as I'm showing here suggest that related examples of marking are out there on the shelves, not just of aldermen, but of lots of academic research libraries around the country waiting to be found and to illuminate our understanding of the 19th century. Um, so I'll just go sort of... <laughs> This one's, this is actually a student probably, but it's um, er, very early 20th century, there was a boxer named Robert Burns, and so he's, this person has been uh, sort of repurposed the poet into the boxer. Uh, that's going on there. Um, let's see what else we've got. Photos. Again, not, not, it's not just marginalia, it's inserts, you know, hair, photos, things that you'd think would have fallen out in all the years. But many of these books have never really been looked at since the moment they've been, they were shelved because they're just... Um, they're, they're, they were sort of already super, superannuated by the time they hit the, hit the stacks. Um, this is a book by John, uh, this is a book that used to belong to John Stage Davies and it, it's up on the uh, table here. He was the son of the professor who was shot that started the honor code. You guys all know that story. Anyway, John Stage Davies was his, uh, was his son and this is a book where he's tracing coins. He also said something about the, in the back about being honorable and not stealing this book. Uh, it's an interesting uh, connection there. Um, this is a little note that says, um, Dear Effie, can I please be a bridesmaid? But it's clearly a 19th century piece of paper that's um, put in there. But what's the future of this printed material, of these books, and of these general collections in the wake of wide-scale digitization? So each Thursday for the past few years, a large North American van lines moving truck has pulled up to the loading dock out back at Alderman and gathered into itself rolling shelves full of books. Drawn from the circulating collections, well padded for their journey, these books are headed in their ranks for... You guessed it, the Google scanning facility. Right? This is by now a familiar story. These books are, are going to be digitized and added to Google Books Search Library. As of last year, Google had scanned more than 15 million of the estimated 130 million books in the world, and the trucks keep rolling. I think they've stopped doing books here, but they're now, they've moved on to other libraries. Um, and already, as you know, powerful resource, resources emerged for searching, reading, uh, analyzing printed books. And, and we are, in, in some ways, in an extraordinarily stronger position to study the 19th century via its published verbal record and write new histories of the period based on digital searches and collations of various kinds. And um, we're, we're living in that world. Um, and yet, the status of the 19th century book itself within this changing system is, in some ways, conflicted. The books are all out of copyright, and so they're well, re and they're also well represented within the circulating collections of the nation's libraries. These books are becoming rapidly available in full text on Google Books. So if you try to look for a modern book on Google, you know it often you just get a preview or a snippet or no pages. That's because of copyright. But everything before 1923 is out of copyright, and therefore it's put up. Um, it, they're rapidly becoming available via Google. So these books return to Alderman on the same trucks every week, but their journey to the scanning facility has placed them on a different footing within the library and with the within the system of circulation and preservation that enables their existence. In short, they're now in a kind of competition with their own surrogates. Um, 
The resulting effects may be unpredictable, but a strange kind of war is being raged in academic circles between the traditional idea of the library as a physical repository and a research space, and the emerging concept of the library as a virtual data center and access portal. When we say library now, we often mean a number of different things. My iTunes library, for example. Our international collections of 19th century material, plentiful, various, out of copyright, often fragile due to poor paper, and you can see examples of that here, they're at the epicenter of this debate. We're now at the end of the 150-year cycle that produced these collections in the first place. From the printing of the books in the 1830s and after to their acquisition by research libraries as collections got built through the 20th century, as I said, frequently via bequests from the grandchildren of the book's original owners. What will be the contours of this archive as it emerges from the coming decade of digitization? What will the 19th century look like with 2020 vision? The year, I mean. Now, librarians have always weeded the stacks. Books sometimes cease to be useful within a given collection, and professional deaccessioning is part of maintaining a healthy library always. But we're now facing a much, much more sudden and much larger transformation. Students and researchers are visiting the stacks less frequently and demanding ever greater digital access to materials, and libraries are under increasing pressure to justify money spent on their print holdings. Books, and especially these 19th century books printed on poor paper, are expensive to shelve, preserve, and circulate. And in a certain way, one thing my research has revealed is that people must not have been looking at these things very much because there's like doll clothes in them, right? That book obviously hasn't been well used since it was taken in, and so the question on the librarian's mind is why are we taking up space with these things. Um, a few people are using them, and no one's making a convincing case for their retention. Budgetary press pressures, including the mushrooming expenses associated with providing digital access to all these materials, are inevitably going to enforce many of the physical books off the shelves. Um, I'll just give you an example of sort of where we are now. This is Virgo. You probably haven't used Virgo in a while, but you may remember. Virgo, I don't know. Some of you might. The card catalog. This is our electronic card catalog. Um, this, this is a search. I'm looking for Felicia Hemmons, the poet I started with, poet of the image and lava, looking for editions of her book. And we have, there's three entries for the same book, the poetical works of Mrs. Felicia Hemmons, complete in one volume, published in 1836. We do have a copy. It's available in Alderman Stacks. That's the one at the top. But there are also two um, the two below those are digital versions that you can access immediately from your screen. So you all were students here. What would you have done? Clicked and got it right away? Or would you have trundled over to Alderman, hoped the book was there, it was rainy, then you had to check it out, then blah, blah, blah. You know, you're probably just going to click, as we all would. But if you click, um, so this is, so you say, okay, I, I don't want to go to Alderman, I just want to get it right now. You click here, you can get it from Hadi Trust or, or Google Books. Those are both these massive repositories of, of scanned books from the libraries. Um, you were taken to a book, oh, this, is, this is the book, but if you can read that, University of California, right? It's not, so is, there's a decoupling of the, the individual copy that we have on our shelf here with access. You see, the imagination of what a book is is not down to the copy anymore, it's down to the edition or the title. So as long as you can get some copy of the 1836 Hemmons, it shouldn't really matter which one. Um, and for many people, it won't. But where does that leave these kind of uniquely modified books, that's the thing I'm after today. Um, so I direct something called NINES. Uh, this is the Networked Infrastructure for 19th Century Electronic Scholarship at the University of Virginia. And I really just put this up there to convince you that I'm not a curmudgeon or a Luddite. I really am a digital person as well. And I work daily with projects involved in digitizing the historical record of the great age of industrial printing, that is the 19th century. And our collective goal is to open up these materials to various kinds of search, discovery, visualization, commentary, contextualization, and collaborative research. 
But at the same time, we've always stressed that such digital archives are not replacements for the material texts they represent. Rather, they are simulations or models, close relatives of the traditional scholarly edition. The books on the shelves carry plenty of information that's lost in the process of digitization, no matter how lovingly one particular copy is rendered for the screen. And in the case of Google Books, as that scanner's hand showed you that I started with, the emphasis has been placed on quantity over quality. And we can talk more about Google Books if you like, but um, they don't really have an interest in the books themselves. They're really building that. The reason they did Google Books is to find out more about you so they can sell things to you better via advertising. They're not really interested in curating a collection. They're interested in the ways humans interact with information so they can learn more about our preferences and so they can become the operating system of our, of our lives. Um, so if I, my point is if I, our academic research libraries replace large swaths of their original 19th century artifacts with these single copy scans done by Google, um, and by trade I mean sort of de facto trade, that is by having students that availability there, there's a certain way that you, you're prepping the field for the, for the elimination of the printed books, unless someone's making the case that these things are interesting. Um, my point is the books themselves are not merely reports on the 19th century, they are individual 19th century scenes of evidence produced conveyed, sold, handled, read, and marked by the culture of study. This archive of the history of the making and consumption of books cannot be replaced by single copy scans, and new scholars of the historical record cannot be trained solely on simulations. The study of books quickly reveals that such objects are extremely complex, both as products of material and social processes, and as platforms upon which readers elaborate their own identities. We all respond to books in certain ways. Some of them are emotional, but some of them are physical, um, and I'm interested in that. And as my example suggests, 19th century books in particular, I mean, this was really the golden age of the book, the apogee of print culture in the West. The printed word was never greater than it was in the 19th century. Um, it was never more widely available. Literacy was never higher, and without any competition from any televisual media or even till relatively late in the center, century, photography and, and cinema. Um, so um, this, was the, this was the era. And 19th century books became sites of mourning, objects for interchange, appropriation and memorialization that left traces that we can sometimes still read. And much more work remains to be done on this aspect of the 19th century book, the intersection of its content with its physical structures and evidence of use as ultimately productive of various layers of meaning, not only for individual works or for our understanding of the cultural field generated by certain authors, but for the larger scene of Victorian reading involving emotional investment and identity formation. People picked up books to figure out who they were. Put it a different way, I'm asking us to think about 19th century books as objects of love. And so let me return to Longfellow as a kind of coda here. Another volume in Alderman Library, sitting right here on the carol. Um, a brittle and poorly printed copy of Longfellow's poems and ballads, printed in New York, 1891. Um, Jane Chapman Slaughter, former owner. And it carries a following note written in pencil on the front free end paper. It's hardly legible, I'll read it to you. I mean, it is legible, but it's very dim. Our readings together were in this book, ere you went to your life of work and sacrifice, and I remained to my life of infinite yearning for your presence, the sound of your voice, a yearning never to be satisfied in this world or the next. Now never I see thee, never more hear, the voice of my comrade evermore dear, and he never came back. 
And a number of poems in this copy bear Jane Slaughter's annotations with explicit reference to her memories of reading them, apparently with John H. Adamson, whose name is also inscribed in the book. You can see there is the first owner, John H. Adamson, Christmas 92, Janie C. Slaughter, 1900. Um, for example, in the bottom uh, margin, after the skeleton in armor, which is Longfellow's ballad about a ghostly Viking telling the story of winning the love of a blue-eyed maid, Jane has written the note, then you looked at your watch and said, now shall we go and make that visit, for at five o'clock I have to go to Washington. And we meant you and I, and we had a happy walk. And then in, the, in a later hand, this is the older Jane revisiting the book, she's added in the facing page, our last walk together in this world, never to see each other more, never, oh never, it was after this I called you Norseman, the name we always used to the end in our letters. Do you remember? You added to it your Norseman and your devoted Norseman. Now, in the Longfellow poem, the Viking warrior inspires the maiden's love through storytelling. Once, as I told in glee, tales of the stormy sea, soft eyes did look on me, burning yet tender. And those lines, you can imagine, formed an echo to what was going on as these two people are reading Longfellow's poems together, as James Marginalia tells us quite precisely, at 10 p.m. on Sunday, July 1st, 1900, in the parlor of the Alexandria Infirmary in Virginia. And Jane notes in the margin of this poem, you read this and I said, it just suits your voice. Sorry, I'm trying to bring these pictures back up. Um, they, um, and above long, so in, in another poem, above the poem, Footsteps of Angels, which is sort of about sitting alone in a study and, and having ghosts of the past come back to you. Uh, let me just play this again. She's written, um, is this it? Yes. Uh, you read this July 1st, Sunday, the day you said goodbye, sitting in the great armchair in the infirmary parlor, oh, friend of mine. And then in the later hand, she has added, once mine, now mine no more. Uh, one more example, let's see. Oh, yeah, there's, that's just that blown up. Um, oh, that's at the top of Skeleton Armor. You read this to me last Sunday before you sailed, July 1900, do not forget. This is uh, Copas de Manrique. Uh, this is, okay, so at the end of her translation, uh, of Longfellow's translation of the Copas de Manrique is Jane's note, Sunday, May 6th, Nuble Pa, don't forget. And then in the later hand, she's added, read to me by my Norseman also long ago before he went on his crusade in Liberia at Cape Town on the west coast. Now, Cape Town isn't in Liberia, but um, there is a Cape Mount Episcopal mission in Liberia, and my guess is that the aging Jane was wobbly on the name of exactly where, uh, where uh, um, Adamson went. Um, but that, again, more research needs to be done here. I haven't quite figured out what happened, but I'm working on it. Um, so. Uh, Precious as a shared object and source, this Longfellow book gets marked twice, first as a private message to an absent lover, and then some years later as an unsent letter to one who's been truly lost. That is, the first annotations made in 1900, just after John's departure, seem to have been meant for him to see when he returned from his travels, like they're sort of addressed directly to, the, to him. Do you remember? Remember we read this. Don't forget me. Um, uh, but then, you know, the second one's much later addressed to his ghost, you know, still asking in a way, do you remember? Jane Slaughter never married. She was one of the first women to receive a PhD from the University of Virginia. This was in Romance Languages. And her books were given to the UVA Library in the 1950s after she in turn passed away. 
There she is, portrait of her, self-portrait drawn when she was about 18. And we have her family papers here in special collections. The Slaughter family papers came along with her books, but a book like that wasn't considered special because it's an 18, crummy 1891 edition of Longfellow, so it found its way to the circulating collection. Believe me, it's the most interesting thing in the Slaughter family papers. I've looked through all the rest, and they, you know, they're fine, depending, but this one immediately calls out. Um, so the evidence I've shown you today suggests that Victorian readers cherished their volumes as layered social and domestic objects. They found themselves and their own lost children, parents, and partners in those books. And in turn, the books were transformed into deep, sometimes legible souvenirs through the strength of human love. And out of such essentially domestic circles, some of these books have come down to us as common property, bequeathed places like UVA and made available to students and readers and scholars. As I said, the very family names I've cited today, Slaughter, Minor, Cock, undoubtedly resonate with many of you as names of UVA buildings. These books, too, are part of their legacy and ours. Now, I don't want to leave you with the idea that I'm against digital versions of books. Indeed, a massive horizon of opportunity is opening for students and scholars to trace the history of language and of ideas and of books and reading via the Global Digital Library. And much of my own research for this, this project is only made possible reasonably by digital searching of large numbers of texts. But I worry that individual copies are under a general downward pressure in this new dispensation in which our very idea of the library is changing. In his poem, Church Going, Philip Larkin wonders about the modern fade out of religious faith in the Anglo world. And he wonders why, despite his own apathy and ignorance, he keeps visiting churches. Why does he keep going back? Bicycling on Sunday afternoons, he finds himself often stopping when he passes a church tending to this cross of ground, he said, that is both unaccountably inclined toward and gently caring for what he calls accoutred frousty barns, even as he recognizes that they no longer have the power to hold unspilt what since is found only in separation. Looking forward, he wonders, quote, when churches will fall completely out of use, what shall we turn them into? imagining most of them slowly crumble, crumbling to ruin amidst rain and sheep with only a few cathedrals kept chronically on show. The poem ends as he tries to foresee who will be the last, the very last, to seek a church for what it was, the final representative of beliefs wedded to practices within the special shell that was created to house them. And Larkin's poem has been on my mind lately as I walk through Alderman, so much is changing in the realm of the book, and we hear so often about the digital transformations of reading that many are wondering about the future relevance of these physical buildings and their material contents. Are places that look like the Alderman stacks going to fall like Larkin's churches completely out of use? From here, if we could see through that wall, we could almost glimpse the rotunda, the enlightenment temple of knowledge that Mr. Jefferson placed at the heart and visual center of his modern secular academical village. And it was no accident that, that the rotunda held the library of the university for its first 100 years or so. Jefferson, a true 18th century bookman, selected and arranged the books for the collection himself, and he also hired the librarians. Edgar Allan Poe was one of the first patrons of the rotunda library. You all know this. The collection grew over the decades, requiring an annex in the 1850s. And then in 1895, there was the fire um, that uh, claimed 40,000 volumes. They were lost, uh, despite intrepid students and professors who threw books out of the rotunda's upper windows as the flames spread. Rebuilding, planning, and new construction led to the opening of Alderman Library in 1936, which soon held over 300,000 books. 
and it was around that time that they began taking in the donations. So this book library is open in 36. If you looked at the donation stamps of most of these books, it's 1940, 1950, um, right around the time the Victorian, last Victorian grandparents were fading, or there was a certain cycle of generations that were going on there, parents and grandparents. So now with about two million items on the shelves, Alderman remains the central library here. And with inhaling distance of the, its forebear, the rotunda, Alderman carries this founding legacy into the 21st century. But now the specific content of that legacy is the focus of profound change. In defending the traditional book-filled Alderman Library, I've heard many colleagues and former students praise the serendipity of wandering in the open stacks. Everyone seems to have a story about finding the perfect volume by chance on an adjacent shelf while in quest of something else. You, know, you went to look for one book, but it was the book over here that, changed, that was really the one you wanted. Um, and indeed, my examples of marginalia depended essentially on random discovery and a lot of shelf surfing and browsing. Um, but this objection to shelf clearing is really too easily answered. Uh, what people say in response is, guess where we browse now? On computers. We even have a verb for it, right? We discover things serendipitously online all the time. In other words, you'll get used to it, just as you got used to navigating the book stacks as a student. It's just another pathway towards knowledge. But to my mind, a deeper loss of the using a bookless college library involves a lack of contact with the physical volumes in the aggregate, and thus with the deep time they embody and communicate. When patrons walk through the stacks, their searching for specific titles necessarily takes them past ranges of variously aged books devoted to whole branches of learning, many of which they will never engage. Through the course of their four years on grounds, students may pass these shelves many times, slowly imbibing a sense of the massive scale and reach of human learning across the years, really trying to, uh, getting a sense of the scope of the humanities um, and the social sciences. Becoming familiar with their presence and the histories they reflect is deeply, ineffably significant. The arrays of spines teach humility. These books send a message about the values of the university, speaking of lives gone by, of minds devoted to the pursuit of creative expression, of critical inquiry, and historical investigation. And at Alderman, the books on the shelves are literally holding up the whole structure of the building architecturally true that, that the shelves are part of the structure um, and they are the humanistic and historical spine of our whole enterprise here. So I'm brought back then finally to Larkin who calls the church a serious house on serious earth in whose blent air all our compulsions meet and who concludes that we will always need such places in ways that transcend their apparent utility. In the modern university the book-filled library can never be obsolete even if the 21st century student never opens many of the books, he learns from their variegated physical presence something about the passions and the triumphs, the farces and the tragedies consequent upon the pursuit of knowledge and the circulation of embodied forms. And with that, with the books before him, in what Wallace Stevens might have called their holy hush of ancient sacrifice, he can begin his serious life. I think of those many 19th century books on the shelves and of their momently audible voices and imagine a student, perhaps initially bored and uninformed like Larkin, who nevertheless may find himself tending and attending to them, becoming a patron at last. Since, as Larkin concludes, someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious and gravitating with it to this ground, which he once heard was proper to grow wise in, if only that so many dead lie around. That's the end of my formal remarks. Um, so that, that is sort of just the setup here. And what I'd love to hear from you all is um, reactions to the changing nature of the library or 
ideas about bookmarking and book use that you've encountered in your past. Um, we can also come, if everyone wants to grab a bunch of books and look at them, we can do it that way as well. So um, any reactions or, or questions about what I've said so far? Yes. Yes, right. So the question is, what, what makes a book qualify for special collections? That is, how do, we, uh, how, do, how do those decisions get made? And obviously some of these seem to belong in special collections and yet they didn't make it. Um, part of it is um, that marginalia has never been well cataloged unless it's a book of a famous person. Right? So if it's, if it's Edgar Allan Poe's writing in the margin, then that goes in special collections, obviously. But these people are essentially... Um, uh, not anonymous, we know a little bit about them, but they are not famous people. They're not people who's, who, that are sort of names to conjure with, except in, in small, maybe, circles. So their books di didn't really get um, distinguished from other books that have marks in them, like student marking and things like that. So there's a, when, when a librarian looks at these, it's like, oh, this book has sort of got marks in it. Oh, well, it's good for the circulating collection because it's not really valuable. In fact, it all depends on how we determine value, but a lot of collectors say don't want books that have marks in it. They want a clean first edition, everything's pristine, just like it came off the press. And so there's a way these books are, have, have never really been valued by collectors, and so they have a, a low monetary value, and so they've been seen as, well, maybe not really worth the, the making it over the border into special collections. I will say that some of these will go into special collections now that I've found them. You know, that, that it's just that they, it, in the shuffle of acquisitions, you know, 100 years ago, it was not recognized that this book should have been in special collections. And that happens all the time. It, you know, a scholar will find a book and go talk to the special collections librarian and recommend a transfer. So we can do that with individual titles. What I'm more worried about is the whole system if we suddenly get rid of all of these because of digitization, we need at least to do a triage where we look through everything and make sure we're not throwing things out that we didn't intend to, to get rid of. Yes? Can we to Clark? To Clark? I haven't done this shelf search at Clark yet. I need, I need to do that. Um, do you have any uh, experience over there? Do, they, do you think this phenomenon is, is repeated there? Yeah. By nature, they're often more mathematical. Yes, that's right. And so, yeah, I've, I mean, I sort of went looking where the light was good. That is, I looked, I've looked only at uh, the liter PRs and PSs, basically the English, British, and uh, American literary call numbers. Because in the theory that, oh, this, this commentary is going to be relevant to me as a scholar of literature, whatever said, I can, I'll have more to do with it. But, you know, there's, there's so many more fields and languages and things where, where, where this is clearly happening. Um, and I, you know, we need to do a much wider longitudinal study. So one of the things we're trying to do, I'm trying to cooperate with the librarians now, is to develop a grant application that would fund a development of a triage process where UVA could pilot, you know, what do we do? Because UVA isn't alone in this. A lot of university libraries in the country have the same trajectory of collection building and have similar um, materials on their shelves. But you actually have to open every book um, almost one by one. You can't just look at the electronic catalog record or the number of times it's been checked out or how old it is or how many copies we have. You have to say, okay, yeah, we have six copies of this Longfellow and it's never been checked out, but the Slaughter one, we actually had to, you know, no one has seen it that was there until I actually just opened it. So um, how do we manage this at scale? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Is there a way to check back in and find 
Right, so this is about um, do books donated to, to UVA libraries. If they made it into special collections, the, the catalog will record their giver. So if they were rare enough or special enough to be over there in the Harrison Small, they, in, you can Google, you can Virgo search for that last name of the donor. That, if they made it in the circulating collections, that information was not captured. Mm, I, I take that back. It was captured on the paper, ca paper card catalog. So the card catalog, which is still around, I think it's up on the fifth floor somewhere. No one ever looks at it but me and one other very old man um, who I sometimes see up there. Um, if you look at the individual cards, often the librarian in pen or in pencil on the back will written gift of Mrs. Barringer or something like that. But when that card catalog was digitized and turned into Virgo, they didn't think it worth the candle to record that information for the circulating collections because they figured these books are disposable and interchangeable. They've, and in other words, to put the, a book on the circulating shelf is to already make the decision that it is not an artifact and it is not of archival value. It, should be, it can be checked out, jammed into backpacks, and when it falls apart, we'll buy another one. Right, that's that. So they have le there's less curatorial attention paid to the Ottoman books, which in many cases is perfectly appropriate. What I'm trying to make the case now is that these, these 19th century books, um, because of their particular status, their fragility, those things that are happening, we need to give them another look and think about them as potential artifacts and not merely just replaceable things. Um, you can also go over to, there, there is the history of library correspondence. So if your mother or grandmother wrote a letter to Harry Clemens or whoever the librarian was at the time, that his correspondence with every donor is over there. And so you can sometimes, if you know the date of about around the time of the bequest, you could look at the librarian's co correspondence from that date and possibly find, you know, sort of what their exchange was. And, and there's, there, has, there is that sort of internal record keeping, but, yeah. Which kind of books? Well, it depends. So, you know, Thomas Price's books, he was a professor here, and they're mostly in the circulating collections. I found a number of his in the circulating stacks. Now, some of his books were like rare Latin and Greek texts, and they made their way into special collections, but the decision seems to be made about the scarcity of the volume itself, irrespective of its owner. So his collections was just sort of some, you know, certain percentage goes to special, the rest of it goes to circulating. Um, but I mean, I need to do more research here about the history of our own library patterns of that decision making as well. What was going on back in the 30s and 40s as the collection was building, it's just, it's slightly outside of my range, but I'm, I'm getting drawn more into it because of my experience just with finding these things. Yeah. Yes? Yes. Yeah. Is it also part of it? And is there a remark made about it or the number of annotations? So and the question is sort of how um, can you, could you scan these things? Could you digitize thing, these things and somehow capture their unique artifactual qualities? What are the, I mean, you could in a sense. Like I could say, okay, my new project is to, every, every time I find one of these, is to create a loving digital version of it. In effect, that's what I've done in just showing you all these images, right? I haven't shown you the actual books themselves, although I assure you they're here. You don't need to come and look at them to get the force of the argument and to feel like you've experienced these projects. So yes, one could do that, um, but um, it's not going to be done unless someone takes it on at, because these books, are, the books as books have already been digitized. Right. So someone would have to say, okay, we already have, a, there's already a copy of the 1891 Longfellow in Google Books, but let me go around to all the nation's libraries and look at every individual copy to see if any of them have been, 
have doll clothes in them. Do you know what I mean? So it's sort of like how do you begin to, you can, you can sort of digitize sort of anything. But how do you deal with the whole system of books that are out there? We tend to think one digitized copy of every edition is enough, unless it's, it's special in some way. But how do we find out that we're special? And that's the problem I'm trying to wrestle with now, is how can we begin to discover these things? We don't want to just save them and keep them on the shelves and let them continue to fester and rot for another 100 years. They've been sitting there for all this time. No one's ever noticed them. As we go through this process of digital transformation, now's the moment to actually let, bring them to life. You know, let them find out what's going on, expose them, digitize them, you know, get them up there. Um, at the same time, how do you do that at scale in a way that will still preserve a kind of feel for the, for the text? And you know, the deeper issue um, is that even if you preserved all the marginalia, all the things that we can see about these books now, there's lots of stuff we can't see. Um, that is, the marginalia was invisible until I looked at it. That is, Plenty of people probably looked at these books, certainly the librarians had seen them, but they had never seen it. You know what I mean? They'd just been like, oh, that's, a, that's leftover, that's, that's damage, that's distortion, that's something getting in the way of what this book should do, which is communicate the meaning of its verbal contents. But you come out with a certain lens over your eyes, and the, the collection looks very different. And you're only interested in books insofar as they have been modified in this way. And my guess is that that's, gonna, that's continually going to be the case with books, that they are such layered and complex objects that if, until you, you always will need to return to them. Like you always need to return to, say, mummies or something like that. You can't just photograph a mummy a whole bunch of ways and then rebury the thing or burn it. You're, you're going to need that mummy because you're going to develop x-rays, spectroscopy techniques sometime in the future. You'll be able to learn different things about it. And books are sort of the same way. There'll be new technologies. There may be infrared scanning, ways we can bring out structures of material, et cetera, et cetera. But there'll just be new ideological ways of encountering printed material that makes me think, actually, we need all of them. Um, but we can't, that's, that's a harder case to make in this particular moment of straightened resources and digital you know, transformations to say, just save all the books, because that's actually not getting us anywhere. We, we need to think about, have at least a searching conversation about why we're keeping them and how we can get them, make them live again, um, in, in, make them relevant to students' education, make them relevant to scholarly work, bring, them into the, bring students into the stacks, and bring the books into the lives of the students, and that's what we're trying to work out now. You know, I don't think so. I've given this talk, a version of it, at various schools, and people are always interested and curious, and they, there's usually some nodding. But, um, and the librarians will come to me later and sort of say, yeah, we need to think about this. So that's why we want to pilot this grant. I think it's, a, it's we're at the moment where a lot of libraries are sending books to off-site storage. Right? We have Ivy Stacks here at UVA now, but almost every big university library has an off-site place because students are using the books less, so let's move them to a warehouse, and if they really want them, they can get it in a day or two. You know, we'll, we'll ship it, but it's a lot cheaper to move it away from the central heart of the university where real estate is always tight. Um, that's step one, the pro um, and that's fine. Um, the problem with it is it does eliminate this kind of serendipitous browsing. You tend to select the title on a digital interface, and then you get the copy later. And so it doesn't eliminate, but it reduces the chance for the kind of immersion in books that we current, the luxury, really, of the open stacks that we've had, and, and the sort of the plenitude of the open stacks. That's changing across the nation now, and so I think people are coming to terms with like, well, what, wait, well, let's put them in, in storage. Well, wait, why are we putting them in storage? Once we put them in storage, and then, then no one's really going to use them, and they're like, maybe we can skip storage. Why don't we share storage with tech? 
know, why don't we resolve our collection so we actually just all have, why save three copies of this Longfellow edition between us tech and JMU? Why don't the three of us just share one because we're going to be shipping it anyway, et cetera, et cetera. So you see how the logic goes towards a kind of what they call print collections management, managing down the uh, redundancy um, in terms of efficiency, which makes all sorts of sense, except if I stand up and say, but wait, it's not redundant because it's different sets of information that are contained in individual copies. Um, if you look at 10 copies of almost any 19th century book, they will all be different in some way. Um, now, whether those ways are meaningful or not, that's, that's a different question. Whether those ways are significant, whether we as a culture have the resources or the will to preserve that level of variation of granularity across 10 copies, or whether we're just going to agree to say, choose one and let the rest of that species and the rest of that you know, thing just sort of die out. We'll choose one to put in a zoo, as it were, um, and the rest don't really need to exist in the wild anymore. That is a larger conversation that's going to play out over the next decade or so. Is there a hand? Do you have a hand? No? Yes? Right now I'm reading um, Rework of Sherlock Holmes on Kindle. Yeah. It's great. Sure. Because it doesn't weigh anything. <laughs> right. But that time I spent in Clark's house, you, you're seeing right now a transition from books as physical objects to books as bikes on a hard drive. Part of the thing that's lost is not just, it's, it's even more than what you're finding in the margin, the comments in the margins, is the smell, the physical sensation of paper um, that is not going to be part of reading very soon at all. Yeah. And that kind of also kind of, kind of touches that what is a book now, what, what it used to be, what's going to be in the future, and how do we record what's been lost? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're talking about sort of trend media transformation here in a certain way. What was a book? And it, uh, uh, we've, I think we've become more sensitive to that as we've moved to Kindle, as we've moved to reading online. These objects become more alien to us in a way. You know, 20 years ago, a book was a book, and you didn't really have to think about it too much. We all knew what a book was, and we said it. Now when you say book, you could mean the Kindle version, you could mean this, you could mean the... And so these, we, we, in a certain way, we're alienated from this book culture in a way that we weren't just a generation ago. And it allows us to see it in some ways differently, more clearly, and more strange. And it, and it brings up these issues in ways um, that I think are productive. But it, it just reminds me, yeah, these are interfaces. They are technologies um, that have their own character, uh, their own um, sensual nature, their own um, machine-man interaction you know, affordances, that, the kinds of things that we think about with computers now. So, all right, bye. Um, if, yeah, if anyone needs to go, please do. Um, I just want to send around this. Um, if, if you're... If you like this, if you're interested in this, I have a, and you want, you want more, I have a, like a handout that I was going to, but I didn't know how many people were coming, so I will email you a handout which has pictures of examples and a little statement of what I talked about, and so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to send that around. Um. <laughs> yeah. So um, do you need a pen? Here's one. Any other, um, any other thoughts or questions? <laughs> I do. Well, I mean, I, re I really need like a world of research assistants. Yeah. Like, I need a nation of people who will go look for these things on library shelves at their their local universities and colleges. Because what I don't know goes back to the question that was asked in the back: Is this happening at other libraries around the nation? My sense is yes, but I only know that anecdotally. And what I'd really like to get is reports from the field. Like, and also, um, I've looked mostly at large universities. But what about small colleges? You know, I mean, small towns. Small towns.
that's it, because there's a kind of coherent, I mean, you could say, well, there's all these used books online, we could just look at used bookstores, but there's something about the coherence of these local collections, about the place in which the things came together, because they tend to be drawn on lo the local community, and so therefore, they have a coherence that can't be duplicated in the randomness of the rare book market. I mean, you could say, well, why don't you just buy every copy of the 1891 Longfellow you can get your hands on, and see what kind of marks. Now, that's one, actually, that is one sort of thing you could do, to see, was this particular book marked in certain ways, but there's other sorts of questions that being here at, at an institution with the, this history allows you to answer the questions more coherently, because we have a lot of Colonel McCabe's books, we have a lot of Thomas Price's books, we have a lot of you know, uh, Miriam Trowbridge's books, and you keep coming, uh, and Alderman's books, of course, and so you be, be able to start to develop a kind of theory of, of 19th century reading in central Virginia, there's issues of class, gender, what kind of books they read, how did they interact with those books, what did they use them for, it's, it's really a kind of rich the locality uh, thing. Yeah, the stage says the meaning. That's yeah, really, uh, totally, yeah. Because those would have been, in some ways, if they were in another collection, some of them wouldn't have somebody paying any attention That's right. to the loss, you know, I mean, it wouldn't have. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you sometimes, you, if you've ever been in a used bookstore, you'll pick up a used book, you think about buying it, it has some writing in there from the former owner. Sometimes it's poignant, sometimes it's just annoying because it's getting in the way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I've, sort of, I've tried to, to sort of say, well, but what if we took it all seriously? And, and there is a coherence in the fact that you often see the same names. There's a finite number of donors who gave their books and therefore a finite number of book plates. And, and like then you that. can make stories out of Yeah, the stories emerge. So finding out the family relationships of Thomas Price or uh, Janie Slaughter or an Ellen Pierpont, you know, it took some work for me to figure all that out, but it was doable. And it started to connect up with local history, with UVA history that was that made sense to me, and it was you know, sort of part of what I do. Yeah? There's so many other levels of research that seem to avoid. Someone could be doing something on the dress of the 1830s. You've got this little girl. Yeah, exactly. And there are wonderful things like what the children did, what the clothes looked like, how they loved them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I don't want to make this all about me and my own personal interests, but it, that's, that's, that's why I say I looked where the light was good. But That's right. I've looked everywhere for the human figure. See, I, I, was, I found all the doll clothes in that. This is a works of Scott. And it's a big fat book, so you can see why she chose it. She was probably trying to keep them flat. But there's no, I, want, I, want the little, I want the little female, uh, you know, the little figure that I could use, but that's, that's missing. We just have the, we just have the clothes. But, uh, but yeah, the inserts are amazing. Yeah. Yeah, there's all sorts of patterns that start to emerge. You see a lot of young women um, wishing for a husband. I've seen that in a number of books. They underline passages in Romeo and Juliet or passages in, you know, and they'll, they'll sort of write stuff about someday I'll, I'll find love. They, they, they're dreaming on the books. They're using books as a way to figure out who they are and register. I mean, books were also a kind of social network before the fact in that when you wrote something in the book, it had a life. It, that book was going to possibly be read by others. It was part of the domestic furniture, but it might be lent to someone else. People used books to send messages. There's these interesting ones that are gifts from, say, a man to a woman with certain passages underlined, sort of heart-rending. You know, this book is clearly meant as a kind of message to her. It'll say to Jenny Taylor from a friend. And then who have underlined all the parts that say, our two paths are divided. You know, I loved you once, but now you're in these heavy underlines with exclamation points. And it's clear that he's using it as a kind of message. Um, and so that, that kind of personalization, it's not always just a private reverie. 
um, or private memorialization, the very fact of, of this kind of annotation that's happening outside the space of a private journal or diary, happening in the pages of the book that presumably is a piece of domestic furniture or a gift or something that's circulated and is now in circulation here at the University of Virginia, gives it an extra kind of power um, in terms of thinking about what books were, you know, what, specifically what, print, what printed books were and how they operated in a culture that, you know, before, before our own. Well, uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, I want to give you guys a chance to come up if you want to look at any of these. I, I maybe don't touch the ones that are on the table because they're very fragile. If you want to take a, um, this is the UVA Library Annual Report, which you can read more about what's going on at UVA Libraries. Um, that's here. So feel free to take a red one. And if you want to just paw through the other ones there, that's fine too. Again, these are all circulating books. They're not rare books. There, I just pulled them from the shelves, and each one of these has some sort of uh, often marked with a little flag, but sometimes not. So feel free to spend as much time with that as you like. They're not in any particular order, so um, don't worry about preserving the order. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you. I, that was fun. I'm glad to. And so anyway, here's my email up here too. So if anyone wants to get in touch, talk more about this, you can have that. If you want to hear from me, put your name on that, the email list and I'll send you the, the handout with a little, a little bit of, a, of this in it. And, um, and we can keep in touch about the project. I'll, I'll keep you posted on how the, the, uh, the grant application goes and, and where we are with all of it.